Welcome to the God of My Closet podcast, where we explore life and light of the love who embraces all of our skeletons. I'm your host, Ben DeLong, author of There's a God in My Closet. Thanks so much for joining us today. Well, hello, everybody. Thanks so much for joining us today. I am so excited to uh, be joined by Brad Jerzak. He is, um, has been one of my favorite authors, and I've just been so blessed by his work, and, and um, he's just become such a, a blessing in my life. Thanks so much, Brad, for joining me. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah. So um, I, got, um, I started connecting to your work uh, probably like five years ago. Um, I started listening to um, the Beyond the Box podcast and um, and then uh, heard about some of your books there and started reading them and um, just a really big impact, especially Her Gates Will Never Be Shut, um, More Christ Like God. And then um, I watched your video series connected to uh, your book, Can You Hear Me? Tuning into the God Who Speaks. That was really helpful. Thanks. I'm glad it helped. <laughs> so... As you know, and as probably most of our listeners know, I, I wrote the book, There's a God in My Closet, and um, just kind of my journey from um, going from seeing God as kind of hateful and, and mean um, to having a, a more healthy understanding of, of faith and how that impacted my depression and anxiety. And um, as I said, uh, your work really helped me with that, um, yours and, and, and others as well, just realizing that there's a, there's a healthier way to understand faith. It doesn't have to be either mean God or no God. Um, and, and so you, you wrote the forward for my book and I've, I've got, uh, just such, such praise for that. Um, just people really impacted by that. And, and you kind of tell a, a little bit of your story. I wonder if you could share that a little bit today as well, kind of your journey in that. Yeah. I mean, i I must say I was, I was raised by very, loving parents who introduced me to a loving God, but we were also in the context of a, of a theological system that, that included some real terrifying stuff. It was the terrifying stuff that I was probably eight years old before I started to assimilate that. And, and really it's remarkable that you would relate it honestly and openly about mental health issues to do with anxiety and depression, because you would think that, um, the one who said to us, come to me, all you are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. And the, the, the yoke he has for us is, is light and encouraging. And the most broken kind of people were, were drawn to Christ. Yeah. And so if you have a theological system that induces terror and anxiety, and, and, then, and then that is squeezed out as depression, then, then you know there's something wrong. And so mm. part of my early journey was in dispensationalism, which included a constant awareness that Christ could come back next week and you may be left behind. Mm. Um, and if you were left behind, you, you were on your own with, you know, seven years of great tribulation with an antichrist, a persecution, and a forthcoming Armageddon. And then if you made it through that, you still had to wonder about heaven and hell. And the notion of hell at that time was it was pretty brutal. It was this eternal conscious torment in a lake of fire, and you would be thrown there if you hadn't believed the right thing. And mm. so um, uh, all told, that comes a fairly monstrous vision of God. 
and yeah. including the idea that the cross was about about God needing to get his pound of flesh, uh, having his wrath appeased by punishing his own son. And you yeah. can imagine what that does to your trust. And so that's that's where I started. Um, in, in And thankfully, um, that was tempered by my parents and also by my experience of Jesus, you know, in prayer, mm -hmm. even as a little boy. I, I, I had a tough time integrating the two, but uh, it was not until I got older that I, I realized I don't have to integrate these competing visions of God. I can actually let go of the toxic one and embrace something far better and more beautiful. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. And I think too, um, cause my dad was my pastor. Um, and, but at the same time, I, um, I don't really remember him spouting a lot of the stuff that I ended up believing. I, I think like you said, it was just kind of like being immersed in that kind of environment and tradition. Yeah, we had, you know, we, we had traveling evangelists and, and they would always really lay it on thick mm -hmm. and heavy. Yeah. Uh, we also had like chick comics and some of the more entertaining stuff that you could get. And it's, it's, and those were really R rated in some ways. If we, if we think about it now. Yeah. And, um, and, and so it kind of permeated the air, the whole late great planet earth thing, uh, mm -hmm. L Lindsay and all of that. And, and so you couldn't really get away from it. And, and I also remember sometimes uh, Sunday evening services, there's this joke out there and it's funny cause it's partly true. If, if you're low on offerings, you do a Sunday evening service on the book of revelation and that'll bring <laughs> in the people. Yeah. And, and that's actually, it was a thing. <laughs> so I remember uh, even just like burying my, my head in my hands so often about like, am I ready? And, have I repented mm. enough? And would I, would I make it? And that's like, that's not good. <laughs> yeah. So I've had a lot to unlearn. Yeah. 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 I know a, a big thing for me to unlearn was, um, our understanding of hell. And, um, th there was a couple of issues for me. One was, you know, we were taught, but also inferred that and kind of assumed got, uh, hell was just kind of this, um, you know, furnace where people went to be tortured if they didn't believe the right thing. And so there was that, that part of it that was obviously troubling. Um, but then there was the other issue of, well, apparently uh, in this story, God changes his character after death and, and you're no longer, um, he's no longer apparently as loving, as merciful as you were told he was before. And you don't have that option to repent anymore. And so there, there was those issues. And I think um, one thing that I think I could kind of sum up um, reading the book, Her Gates Will Never Be Shut, is that I went into it thinking, um, I don't know that I can handle psychologically believing this anymore, but I don't know if I can be biblical not believing it. Yep. And then, and then coming out the other end of the book being like, wow, I don't think I can actually believe this and be biblical anymore. Mm. Um, so I, I wonder if you could talk about some of the, um, the examination you did on the, on the word Gehenna and, um, kind of the, the traditions that you talked about in that book. Sure. And so one of the, one of the questions up front is like, what is it to be biblical? <laughs> right. Um, yeah. 
And what we meant by that back in the day, were we biblical literalists? And that was a very specific way of reading scripture. And it, and in fact, it was a narrow and I would say shallow way of reading scripture that in fact does not read scripture as gospel. Yeah. So so um, if if we're going to use the word biblical, I guess we could redefine that now as taking the Bible seriously enough to read it um, f- for what it says and in the context of how it was written, when it was written, and also like um, the you know taking genres seriously and yeah. so on, and and that not jamming it into our system because I feel like we had a system we imposed on the text. So mm. in her gates will never be shut. What I tried to do is I, I tried to say I'm not gonna I'll do my best not to come at this. Um, with an agenda or a position, I want to get the data out first. So yeah. I went through every every text that I could find about hell or descriptions of hell or divine judgment and final judgment, and I just went through all of them and I started categorizing it like according to um, who goes where, uh, what's the criteria mm. for going there, mm-hmm. and what is the nature of this final judgment and the aftermath? And I found like an enormous array of, of visions, like even very obvious things like, is it outer darkness or is it a lake of fire? Cause that's really different images. Yeah. Um, is it ongoing torment or is it, or is it uh, non being? And you have both, you have mm-hmm. complete destruction, but you also have this other thing that looks like suffering. And, and then like, who goes there? Is it is it people who didn't believe in Jesus or people who were wicked? And mm. and that depends on the passage. Yeah. And and all of that. So one of the specific things I did is I looked at the words that we've translated help, and uh, I looked at the at, at uh, the Hebrew word sheol, uh, which meant something more like the grave. And yeah. in fact. Uh, that then gets translated into Greek as Hades. And so mm. Hades was a borrow word from Greek mythology. Yeah. Um, is it a place or is it kind of this being, uh, uh, a being that we call death? And, or is it a kingdom? And then, uh, so we've got Hades and then we had Gehenna. And that's not used very many times in the Bible. Um, in James, it's specifically about um, a kingdom, like mm. Hades. Uh, Gehenna is what ignites the tongue to slander others. So that's kind of the kingdom idea. But yeah. elsewhere, elsewhere, it looks to be like a, um, a reflection on a Jeremiah tradition. And so then I started looking at this. Um, every time Jesus mentions Gehenna, he seems to be referencing uh, one of the chapters in in. Jeremiah that refers to the Valley of the Sons of Hinnom or Gehenna. Mm-hmm. And that is specifically that valley south of Jerusalem. And Jeremiah is, he, he's the one who says, uh, look at that. Jerusalem's not safe. Um, in your idolatry, you've turned to other gods and other nations and Babylon will be angry and come and destroy the temple. And you think you're safe because you have a temple, mm-hmm. but you, you are, you've made my temple a den of thieves. And so that's exactly the passage Jesus quotes when he's prophesying the destruction of the temple by Rome in yeah. Matthew. So, so the idea is that Christ is consciously borrowing from the Gehenna tradition of Jeremiah 
and in Jeremiah and in Jesus' application of it, it has to do with destruction of Jerusalem in this in in his generation, yeah. not some afterlife um, judgment. Now that's somewhat overstating it, though, because another tradition arose between the testaments, the Enoch tradition, and the Enoch tradition picked up on Jeremiah's word, but it did turn it into this kind of a, a fiery afterlife. And it looks to us like perhaps that was uh, imported from Babylonian mythology, but it became mm. very popular among the Jews. And and just because it was imported from Babylon doesn't mean everything they imported was wrong. Like that, they also imported the idea of the resurrection. Mm. So we're not going to just toss out everything Babylonian. But the point is that by the time you get to Jesus, some of the rabbis were now using Gehenna with this idea of a fiery afterlife. Yeah. Or at least a fiery judgment in the coming age. And to be fair, sometimes it does appear that Jesus is at least starting there with, with their understanding, but then he subverts it. Mm. So one example would be, if you can imagine these, his opponents believe that um, there's two groups of people, the righteous and the wicked, and they're the righteous, and that there's two destinations, paradise and, and uh, Gehenna, Mm -hmm. And of course, the bad people go to Gehenna. And and so Jesus, when he's preaching in Mark 9, he does warn this. And he says, look, at, you know what? Um, it's better to cut off your right hand and poke out your right eye than to go and to go into the kingdom of God with with uh, one hand or one eye than to go into the fires of Gehenna with both. And so his listeners would be saying, oh, yeah, that's right. We, you don't want to end up in Gehenna. But then having borrowed from their that tradition he mm -hmm. completely turns it on his head by saying oh but by the way you'll all be salted with fire mm. so it's not like a, a two groups and an in group and out group we're all going to pass through the fire and then by the way he says salt is good mm. so now he's turned it from just a, a retributive kind of punishment into this remedial or restorative um thing and and, and then he says, so make sure you have salt in yourself. And now what is he doing? He's internalizing it. And he's saying, let the fire of judgment um, burn away the things that are holding you down and holding you back and, mm. and, and causing you to perish now. So he sort of nodded his head to that Enoch tradition and then flipped it into something else. Mm. So it's a lot more complex, but... Um, the big picture is I think he was he was consciously thinking about the way sin destroys us yeah. um, as it had in Jerusalem uh, in Jeremiah's time, and it was about to happen again. And he says, let's not do that. Let's repent. Mm. Uh, but, of course, they don't, and Jerusalem does go down in flames again. Yeah. That's a bit of about the Gehenna tradition in the New Testament. Yeah. Um, use that word, uh, restoration, and I... Um, I thought we could also talk about um, my my developing understanding of what all this means with reading yeah. and researching and stuff is that, um, you know, it's not about for God. It's not about destruction. It's not about punishment. It's it's about restoration. And so a couple of things you a couple more things you point out in the book is um, how Jeremiah talks about that valley, which becomes the the Gehenna um, is actually included in the new covenant. Yes. Under the new covenant, it says that the, this valley of death or the valley of Gehenna 
will be turned into a garden mm. under the new covenant. So that's just an absolute restoration. And it, it is inclusive of the very thing that was destroyed. So it's not that, that Christ is just, you know, sort of rescuing what's left. He's going yeah. into the worst of it and mm. he's going into the bottom. And now we use this metaphorically. He has gone into whatever our Gehenna or our Hades is. Mm. He's conquered whatever kingdom that represents, the kingdom of darkness. And he's rescued us out of that into the kingdom of, of the sun. And, and, and so we get these beautiful statements in the New Testament, um, Acts 3, about the renewal of all things. Or uh, in Revelation, behold, I'm making all things new. Mm. Or in First Corinthians 15, that that he's going to bring every un- enemy under his feet, including death. And then when when every enemy is under his, his feet, he's going to hand the kingdom over to God, his Father, and God will be all in all. And mm. so, so there is this idea that we pass through a judgment, and so that we don't negate any of the judgment texts. We just treat them as penultimate. That means second last. Yeah, means, yeah. You know, and that it's a valley you pass through. Um, Gehenna is a valley that will be turned into a garden. And that's sort of the picture Jeremiah himself is giving us. Mm. Yeah. I love the way you said that, um, that God goes, he goes into the worst of it. And that, that really, that was my, my personal experience was um, one of my big struggles, you know, part of my anxiety and depression is just, uh, um, just having a, a loathing for myself. Um, that, and, you know, and a lot of that comes from that religious tradition of, you know, you can call it original sin, but really it's just telling you you're a piece of crap. And, and, um, and that's like, (laughs) that's who you really are. And then maybe God will do something about it. And, and so there was just so many lies swirling around inside of me that, that gave fuel to that. And that that was definitely my experience that God went into the worst of that and, um, and restored it. Yeah. There, you know, a lot of this, even for, for a long time, I thought it originated sort of in, in the religious system I was in. And then I realized, no, the religious system was just simply affirming a complete um, fall in the understanding of Adam and Eve. And so what mm. I mean by that is this in the garden narrative of Genesis three, there's no one there to indoctrinate them with awful end times eschatology. But what hap- does happen is the moment they first stumble, they experience shame. Mm. And what emerges from that shame is an image of God and of themselves that's completely mistaken. The mm. image of God is that he is someone to be that they need to hide from. Yeah. Where on earth had they ever got that idea? Well, not in even not in Sunday school. <laughs> you know, they got it. <laughs> Yeah. They got it from their own shame, but also this the self-loathing, um, which they project as blame onto each other, by the way. Yeah. But, um, it's a false image of God, and then it's a false image of themselves. And then here's the, the great tragedy is that you have whole Christ, Christian traditions that actually affirm their error. Right. And, yeah. and make God in that fallen image of Adam and make humanity in that fallen image of Eve. and and then just uh, tell people, yeah, you actually are a piece of crap, and, and that you are you are a dung. And if you, and the best you can hope is that Christ Christ's mercy will cover over the dung, but at heart you're still you're still a piece of shit, yeah. you know. And so, um, um, 
the good news is that that's where Christ went. And so in the, mm. in the ancient, um, uh, the icons of the resurrection, Christ doesn't emerge alone from the tomb. He emerges out of Hades, mm. gone right down to the bottom and found Adam and Eve and pulled them up by their wrists. And he, so whatever, however deep humanity has sunk, Christ gets in below that and mm. come and, and, and that's, it's right in our darkness that we find the cross. Yeah, and we find the one who raises who raises up with himself all of humanity. So that's mm -hmm. a, a beautiful vision I think I see in the early church's presentation of the gospel mm -hmm. that he entered Hades, my Hades, your Hades, um, uh, died and rose there to 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 lift up the whole race with himself. So that Romans five and First Corinthians fifteen is really right when it says, "As in Adam all died, so in Christ all will be made alive." Like yeah. that's a strong statement that mm. he has outdone the damage of the fall mm. for everyone. Mm. Yeah. Oh man. Um, yeah. I wanted to also talk about, you know, your, your book, her name, her gates will never be shut is named after that passage in revelation. And yeah. I, I, I think it's so, so important to talk about that partly because as I said, um, there's part of the fuel for the, angry retributive God and the, the torturous hell is that, well, God's going to, God's going to change his character after you die and, and no more chances and he, you know, no more mercy. Um, but then also, of course, people look at revelation as um, almost this like cancellation <laughs> of the gospel. Um, yep. You know, well, Jesus was love and merciful and, and he taught to love your enemies, but now just wait till revelation. Cause he's going to, you know, this yeah. And um, can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. I mean, so one thing is like a really harsh way of saying it, but it's kind of what we believed as well. You know, he came the first time and he tried love and that didn't actually work. So now he's mm. just going to come and try do violence. And somehow that's still love. But we didn't see that we'd made we'd made the end incongruent with the gospel itself. Yeah, so that's. The other issue is that when you're reading the book of Revelation, you get to chapter 20 where there's this great and final judgment. And people are their name. If their name's not written in the book of life, they're cast into the lake of fire. And and it lists all these different kinds of wicked people that are there. I'm there for sure. A coward is one of them. Mm. And so but we treated like Revelation 20 is the last book in the Bible. And we'd like totally said, well, OK, we know there's two more chapters, but that's just for the good people. Well, actually read it again. So in my book, this is what I did. I said, look, at chapter 20, you've got these pe wicked people in the lake of fire. Then you start chapter 21, and it says, after this, I saw a new heavens and a new, new earth. And it, the new Jerusalem, which is the bride of Christ, comes down from heaven, and, and it's on earth. So heaven and earth are one. Heaven has come to earth. And there's no need for a temple because God himself lives in the city. Mm. And... And this light is shining in the city and there's a river flowing from his throne and all of this stuff. And, and we're like, oh, good. So that's where the good people are. The bad people were, were in, put in hell in 20. The good people are put in like this new Jerusalem in 21. But we didn't read carefully because it says, and outside the city I saw, and it lists the wicked again. Mm. It's like, wait a minute. I thought they were in the lake of fire. It's like, oh, yeah. sure. That's one picture. But here's another one that they're outside the city and they're excluded. Okay, well, as long as they're excluded, oh, hang on, though. It says that uh, 
that the gates of the city will never be shut. Okay, the city is the bride, remember? The city is is the people of God. And the gateway into that city, the gateway into the people of God is never shut. And then it says, and the spirit and the bride say, come. Okay, so they're continuing in the new heavens and new earth to invite those outside the city. Oh, wait, who's outside the city? Can't be the believers. The believers are the city. So then that, that must mean they're inviting the wicked outside the city. And then we read that that um, that this river flows out there, and and you can just imagine the people out there saying, okay, I'm, I am dying of thirst. I want to go into the city. Mm-hmm. Can I go into the city? Well, the spirit and the bride say, yes, you can. But only if you wash your robes in the blood of Christ. It's like, well, then they will. You know, um, so you're still our entrance to the city is still through a, a faith response to Christ. But we see this faith response happening in the new heavens and the new earth. Mm. And uh, and it says, and then I saw the kings of the earth. Now, up until that point in the book of Revelation, the kings of the earth had always been those who had been deceived by the beast and persecuted the church. That's mm. who the nations are. Now it says in, in 20, 21, 22. Now I saw the kings of bringing the glory of the nations into the city. So there's movement, there's process. And as they come into the, into the city, it says that there's the, the tree of life on each side of the river has leaves for the healing of the nations. So well, who needs healing? The nations need healing because they're coming in and they've been excluded and now they're coming in, they can be healed. So there's still processes happening. All of that to say, I don't think Revelation 20, 21, or 22 is our strongest telescope into the future because um, it's still about the coming age. It's mm-hmm. still about movement. It's still about response. It's still about healing. So there's processes. Uh, our strongest telescope into the future is 1 Corinthians 15, where all of that is done. Mm-hmm. And so whereas Revelation is talking about the age to come, 1 Corinthians 15 is talking about the end of the ages. Mm-hmm. When all of that is done and all of that is now uh, under the feet and reign of Jesus Christ and all of that is is now delivered into the hands of his father and there is no more evil. And and that means hell has already been renovated. Um, the damned have already been processed and now God is all in all. So that's a very powerful um, kind, kind of vision of ultimate redemption. But again, only through um, response to the saving work of Jesus Christ. So in that sense, it's it's not just a, a bland pluralism uh, where yeah, everyone's yeah. in automatically. You know, ultimately, we're redeemed by a redeemer and, and uh, the embrace of our redeemer. Mm. So that's sort of how I see Revelation playing out. I was just thinking, and I can't remember off the top of my head if you talked about this in, in the book, but <clears throat> I know... Um, at some point you transitioned from um, the evangelical tradition to moving into the Eastern Orthodox tradition. And, and I think I I know for me and my experience, the evangelical community, when they talk about resurrection, it's well, you know, Jesus rose from the dead to kind of prove that he was God and um, you know, have a victory, but, but it wasn't, it wasn't this understanding of, well, what has actually happened to death in, yeah. in this whole process. And, 
and in that tradition it's well you know god um changes his mind he's not as loving as merciful but that that gives death a lot of power that it shouldn't have and and the eastern orthodox tradition um really um i think they understand that a lot better can can you talk about talk about that a little bit of just death being conquered yeah i'd love to so um one of our gotcha texts in the evangelical world was the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, where it talks about Hades. And of course, we confuse that with Gehenna. It's not the same thing. Although I would say they've equally been conquered. Mm. But um, the way we would use the text as evangelicals was to say, look, at the rich man represents those who go to Hades and they are stuck there. You can't leave there. And no one can go there. And it's it's a permanent exclusion. And that is how that text looks. Um, however, uh, what, what we failed to see is that this is a parable that has its punchline, um, actually, in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and how that affects Hades. And so here's the idea. And it's, it's really embedded right in the parable. Jesus is already hinting at it in interesting ways. So he becomes the one who can cross the chasm. Christ crosses the uncrossable chasm. He becomes the one who comes back from the place no one can come back from. That mm. is the point of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And yeah. so that even gets proclaimed in the Apostles' Creed, that he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He descended into hell. And was then resurrected. So hell in the Apostles' Creed isn't this afterlife um, judgment. It's the place Christ went to conquer yeah. on, on Good Friday. Mm-hmm. So then um, we come to we come to the Orthodox tradition, and they've seen this, and they basically have said death death died in the death of Christ. In other words, um, Athanasius would say Christ saw us descending into non-being. That's how he saw death, mm-hmm. and. and uh, we were the human race was descending into non-being and Christ must God God wants to save us from death but but for some reason for God to save us from death he has to enter death or enter mm-hmm. Hades mm-hmm. but because God can't die how is he going to enter Hades ah he takes on a, he he takes up a human nature he takes mm-hmm. up a human body that can die and so in the crucifixion of Christ um uh, Christ descends into Hades, but wait, his his divine and human nature aren't divided up. It's one person. Mm. So there's one divine human enters Hades, but wait, so he's human so he could die, but he's divine so he can't die. What will happen? What will happen is he blows up death from the inside. Mm. Christ, God in Christ destroys death by dying and rising because death can't hold him. And it completely renovates uh, what Hades was. Now it's no longer this place where we descend into non-being. Now it's a place uh, that it's it's not a destination at all. It's a doorway into eternal life. Mm. And that so it's very very important we understand that Christ conquered death, so that Paul can say in Romans eight, death can't separate you from the love of God. I mean period mm-hmm. <laughs> and and death can't separate you from the love of god because that's precisely where he went to r- rescue us from mm-hmm. and so th- paul young says it this way things you will never hear god say 
uh, right after you die, you won't hear God say, oh, I'm sorry, you died. There's nothing I can do. <laughs> um, no, uh, God is is all-powerful love, and the thing he has done is, is to, is to uh, save humanity uh, from the death of non-being and uh, from the mortality we experience now, which includes foreseeing our death and fearing it. Mm. Um, if Christ is risen, he's totally destroyed that, that, that fear. And so for Athanasius, he would say, uh, here's how we know Christ rose from the dead. Uh, not because of the empty tomb it says, cause we're not afraid of death anymore. Mm. Um, that it's not a thing. Right. And so, yeah. um, I, I guess uh, I guess Christians have lapsed back into that, and so we need things like eternal conscious torment as a, as a, a whip to to help people, you know, believe or something like that, mm. which, which is a remarkable omission from all of Paul's preaching. You know, yeah, he never once goes there in any evangelistic sermon in the Book of Acts. Mm. So, uh, if it was a necessity, that then he sure blew it. But I don't think he <laughs> yeah. blew it. I think yeah. he understood the death of death in the death of Christ. Mm. Mm. Um, so, yeah, a few years ago, you also wrote your book, A More Christ-Like God, and mm -hmm. um, just talked a lot about how our, you know, it's, I mean, it's in the title, but our God is not doesn't look like Jesus a lot of the times, the way that we describe him. And um, and and so you you do all that to to be able to reframe the gospel. And that the gospel is not um, a God who is has an animosity towards us. Um, and but that the way that a lot of evangelicals talk about the gospel, that's what it is. Um, so could you, you talk a little bit about um, understanding God as Christ like and then how that reframes the gospel of God's position towards us that he doesn't turn his back towards us? Sure, I'd love to. So. Um... In the book, what I do is I talk about some of the, the, the toxic images of God that we've picked up, uh, whether it's through our own experiences or temperaments or indoctrination or community worldview and so on. There's all these different ways we pick up strange images of God. So, and I, I give a few different examples. So you've got the, the harsh, punitive, judgmental monster God. Um, who, who's a, a tyrant king or a punishing judge. Um, but on the other hand, others have a very absent, distant, silent God who wasn't there when they needed him and sort of just lets everything happen and, uh, and, and kind of walked away, which is sort of the God of deism. He winds up the universe, but then he's an absentee landlord or a deadbeat dad. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> and then we've got another kind of version of God that's more, more just like the doting grandparent or, you know, you go to, you go to the mall and sit on Santa's knee and ask him for whatever you want. And then he'll give mm. you whatever you want. And of course that leads to great disappointment when you don't get whatever you want. And mm. we're all disillusioned and defended that he wasn't our genie in the lantern. Cause after all, hadn't we, hadn't we uh, sort of rubbed up, rubbed the lantern properly or something, mm. um, which became our idea of intercession. And so what I do is I said, we've got all these bizarre toxic images of God that actually dramatically affect our emotional state, our mental state, but also how we live in this world. And especially if we start to become agents of the God we believe in. Mm. And that's, that's especially dangerous. If you have an angry God, then you become his angry agent. And you see a lot of 
destruction come out of that. Yeah. But what Christ and, and you will see some of these images of God in the Hebrew scriptures. And they don't reflect the true nature of God because John 1 says, uh, no one's ever seen God at any time, but God, the son who was in the bosom of the father, he has made him known. So God becomes flesh and dwells among us so that he can reveal the true nature of God. And that true nature comes into clearest focus on the cross. And what the cross shows us about God is not a God who needs appeasement and wrath. Uh, he's a God who in the face of our wrath, and our our murderous rage against goodness and love um, that that he responds with self-giving, radically forgiving, co-suffering love. Mm. That's the revelation of God in Christ through the cross. And and that is something that he calls us to emulate when he says, take up your cross and follow me. I want you to become self-giving disciples who radically forgive your enemies Mm-hmm. And are willing to co-suffer in solidarity with the poor and the sick and the lost and the broken and the prisoner and the, you know, and so on. And so uh, that the more Christ-like God becomes the more Christ-like way, which I've just also released as a book. It's a sequel to a more Christ-like God. And so um, in terms of then how we understand the gospel, we have, um, it is not that if you sin, God turns from you. And if you repent, he turns to you. Uh, St. Anthony the Great, the great desert father of the early 4th century, he said, God no more turns from the sinner than the sun turns off for the blind man. Mm. Um, We may may turn from God, but he doesn't turn from us. He's in perpetual pursuit. And this is the the whole narrative of scripture shows this. Um, I did a... I did a presentation that we called the gospel in chairs in Denver. If people want to see how I play that out. So if you, if you go to YouTube and just look up Denver, Jersack and chairs, and maybe you could add a link. Um, uh, people could see that the, the whole story of scripture is when we turn from God, he comes in pursuit of us over and over. And this becomes Christ's, Christ himself, his central message that you see in the three parables of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost sons. Um, that, that I, and I especially love the language of the lost sheep where it says he leaves the 99 to go out um, to, to, in search of the, of the one lost sheep until he finds them. Mm. And that until he finds them is one of the most powerful phrases for me in, wow. in terms of how how God in Christ um, never gives up on that mm. pursuit. And so we would pick up phrases like his mercy endures for how long? Till you die? No, forever. Mm. His loving kindness is, is uh, temporary? No, his loving kindness is everlasting. And uh, you had referenced about God changing his mind after after death. And, we, you know, I'm, I, I think probably we would have pushed back at you as in the evangelical world. So he didn't change his mind. He's just he's just letting you go with your decision. It's like, no, he always pursues us on into eternity mm. until he finds us. Mm-hmm. And so that gives me great hope um, that he's not one to give up on anybody, mm. either in this life or the next. Mm. Yeah. So what um, what would you say now if someone asked you what what is salvation? What would you say now after your journey that you've gone through? Yeah, I um, so I would include a few things. One is 
um, I see in the New Testament, if we're going to use that word saved, include the word sozo includes saved and delivered and healed. Mm. But um, and there is a past, present and future experience of that. So the past is the past ver experience of that is that in Christ's life and death and resurrection, he has already saved the human race in the sense that he's reconciled us to God and forgiven our sins. And that, that was a done deal 2000 years ago. And probably even that that was the instantiation in space time history of a done deal in the very nature of God, the mm. eternal nature of God, but it had to happen in history and it did. So that's, I've already been saved. Um, also then there's a future version of salvation, which is, well, clearly I have not arrived yet. My body is still um, on the downward spiral <laughs> and uh, decomposing as I speak and, and that I will pass through what we, you know, what we call death. But my future salvation is the resurrection in, of my body and the glorification of my being where I am changed from glory to glory into the image of Jesus Christ. That's not done yet. So in that sense, salvation is still future. Mm -hmm. uh, but then I would also say, though we've got this past and this future sense of salvation, there is a now experience of it. And that's what I invite people to. Um, that, um, and I, I, I get some of this from 12-step recovery with, uh, you know, Alcoholics Anonymous, Narcotics Anonymous, and so yeah. on. Uh, where in step three, they say this, we became willing to give our lives and our will over to the care, not the control, the care of the God of our understanding. And so what I say is if God, if God loves you as much as Christ revealed, would you like to experience life in his care? Mm. Would you be willing to surrender your life to his care, to the God of, to this, this God who has loved you, has already forgiven you, has already reconciled you, but like in your real life now, what would the experience of that look like? Well, it would look like a surrender to someone who already loves me. It would look like the prodigal son coming home. Mm. He never ceased to be a son, but he did live out slaving away in the field with the pigs, just as the older son was slaving away in the field. They weren't enjoying and experiencing the inheritance of their sonship yeah. or daughterhood in the case of, of women. And so, so the invitation then is not, if you repent, God will turn to you. The invitation is there's a God waiting with open arms. And the moment you take a step towards him, he is running to you. And the parable says, while, while we are still far off. Mm, yeah. And so um, that uh, I just think that the gospel is there in a nutshell. And if you'll notice the prodigal son story, no one has to be punished. Mm. <laughs> it is God. Um, if Christ maybe one way of seeing it is Christ, Christ is the, is the calf who was slain. And now we are invited to come dine at the at his banqueting table, you know, but whatever that, uh, the point, the point being salvation is about the experience of a God who already loves us and mm. a willingness to receive that love. Mm. Mm. Wow. Well, um, we're getting close to the end of our time, so I'll, I'll ask you one more question, and then I'll, I'll have you also just, um, we're going to talk about your two new books another time, but um, I'd love for you sure. just to go give a short, you know, little um, advertisement for them, just so people know they're aware of it. Um, so my, my last okay. question for you, um, 
So one, one thing that really helped me and that whole image of the God in my closet is that he's, he's present, you know, in my crap and that, yep. and, and Richard Rohr really helped me um, just to, to um, emphasize not, not judging what's inside of me. Um, Cause for one, I don't, I don't even really understand it. <laughs> um, yep. And, and not um, that, that, that's not helpful in the process. And, and I know something um, you wrote an article um, that talked about um, the dynamic of free will. And, and you've talked about this in other places of, of just asking how free are we really? Um, because a lot of times people get kind of beat over the head with, well, if you would just use your free will to make the right decision and it just makes people feel like more crap. Yeah. So what, what would you yeah. say about that just to help people have more compassion on themselves? Yeah, I would say I would say that um, while God has God has given us um, agency, um, we underestimate how constrained that is by the world, the flesh, and the devil, whatever those things mean, right? So yeah, yeah. Um, that 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 I'm um, what we've discovered is that self will does not save you. In fact self-will was the problem in the first place that yeah. was what adam and eve did in the garden they, they they wanted to become like god through through willfulness and and uh and now often we we feel so broken and desperate and we struggle with sin and so on and we think we're going to overcome that through willpower and we we would call it self-control as if it as if we mean the fruit of the spirit but what we really mean is you should try harder yeah and when you try harder Actually, that's what you got you in this mess. And so don't be surprised if, if you stumble and so on. And um, we, I would say uh, I don't need to convince anyone that they're broken. They, they seem to know it usually. I mean, mm. unless the self-righteous or whatever, but I, I, don't, I can't really help them. But if someone, someone knows their pain and someone knows their experience, then, um, then it is a, actually a function of the ego that beats ourselves up. Mm. So our, our ego is punishing us for embarrassing it by not being perfect. Mm. Um, so loading on more guilt and more condemnation to that is, is just egotistical. It doesn't feel like it because you're like, no, I'm really broken. It's like, well, that voice though, that voice is punishing you and it mm. is a self-righteous fair inner Pharisee. Yeah. Uh, maybe it's even the conscience on crack um, independent of God. So it's trying to crawl up on his throne. So yeah. what I do in cases like that, I say, look at, um, um, if you are, if you are engaging in self-loathing or self-hatred part, of, there is part of you that has, is playing God. And it is, it is sitting on a throne that belongs only to Christ and it's sitting as your judge and it's mm. pounding you. And so I, I, I would say then, could could we, and I may even do this. I I may rebuke that voice, and, and, and or I may ask the person, could you fire that and say, like, you don't belong on that throne. Mm. Um, you, your role, let's say your conscience, for example, your role is not to sit on the judgment seat and condemn me. Your role is to serve the judge, mm. and the only judge that belongs on that throne is Jesus, and he's he's the one we can trust with a verdict of mercy. Mm. So now the merciful judge takes his place on the throne. What is the role of your conscience? It is not to condemn and accuse you. Your conscience 
is to be like a prophet who goes out in the power of the spirit to your pig pen hmm. and says, come home to the father's house. There's, there's love and welcome there for you. And, and so, so then even your conscience then, instead of being condemning and accusing can be um, a servant that invites you to the banquet. Mm. invites you out of your pig pen invite and you're like you don't have to live this way anymore or or in your brokenness it's like it you know you don't need another beating that's just not helping you what you need is good you need good news Mm. that there's a and it and so romans 2 says that it's the kindness of god that leads to repentance and if Mm. we could teach our inner voices the kindness of God to, to be agents of kindness instead of ministers of accusation. That would really help us out. I think. Yeah. Yeah. That's really good, Brad. Thank you. Um, so why don't you give kind of your like 30 second pitch for your two new books? We'll, we'll talk about them more at another time, but just so people know they're out there. Sure. Um, a more Christ-like way is the sequel to a more Christ-like God. And it includes a discussion on deconstruction, reconstruction. It includes four counterfeit ways that have co-opted Christianity quite often. Mm. And then seven facets of the Jesus way, which is how Jesus played out uh, a rev- his revelation, not of just of God, but what it is to be truly human. And he mm. invites us to, to that journey with him. Uh, the other book is called In, and the subtitle is Incarnation and Inclusion, Abba and Lamb. So the idea of the book In is how... Um, We've we've struggled between like if if Christ is unique, then we become exclusive mm-hmm. and you have to, you know, join our club to know God. But if God loves everyone, we often diminish Christ as if he's just, you know, optional or one of many and kind of pluralistic. And so what I'm saying in that book is no, it um it's both and the higher your Christology, the wider your vision of the love mm-hmm. of God. And, and because of that, what we'll see is many people who aren't yet Christians already know God because they've met the light or they've met the word or they've met God in some way. But And now we can come along as witnesses to say, by the way, he's also a lamb who mm. died for you, rose for you so that you don't have to be afraid of death anymore mm-hmm. and that you don't have to live in, in shame or guilt. Um, he wants to wash that away. But I'm not negating anything they already knew about God. I'm yeah. just saying there, there's a bigger inheritance and a deeper assurance that, that we can testify to. So mm-hmm. it's um, we've got a theology sort of of Cornelius knowing God before he hears the gospel and then what mm-hmm. happens when he hears the gospel. And then I've got about seven or eight stories of, of, of seeing that in this world that are quite inspiring. Oh, that sounds really good. Um, thanks so much, Brad, for, for taking time, for writing the foreword, for just um, all the work that you do. It's such a blessing. My pleasure. It's good to see you walking in wholeness now. And at least uh, we're on the journey anyway. So. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Well, what a great conversation with Brad. I love that guy and I love his work so much. It's meant a lot to me. It's really helped me. Um, through my deconstruction and reconstruction and just coming to a healthier understanding of faith. Um, I hope you enjoyed and benefited as much from this conversation as I did. Um, Brad just has so much wisdom to offer in in several different areas, but especially in um, understanding what the Christian faith looks like when it's healthy and when it's understanding the gospel 
um, as it truly is. I love what he had to say in, in emphasizing God's posture towards us, that God is always pursuing us. That even when we mess up, God doesn't turn his back on us. He is always coming after us. I also love what he talked about when I asked him, what is salvation? And he talked about those three um, sort of phases of salvation. Uh, the first one uh, is what God has already accomplished, that that we are already reconciled to God through Christ. It's done and it's it's accomplished. That's so important to remember, to take the pressure off of us, that when we're having a bad day, when we just can't seem to get it together, that doesn't negate what's been accomplished through Christ. It doesn't change that we are united to God through Christ. He also talked about what God wants to do to save us in the future, but also right now, where we are, God wants to meet us in our pain, in our darkness, in our hell, our Gehenna, whatever that looks like. God wants to meet us in the worst of it and restore it. So whatever you're dealing with and wrestling with today, whatever your Gehenna looks like, God wants to meet you there and make something beautiful out of it. Again, so thankful for this time to chat with him. Um, I'm going to put some links um, for his books of where to find his work. Also, some of his videos, including the one he mentioned um, about the gospel and chairs. If you haven't had a chance yet, please check his work out. It, you'll be thankful that you did. It is so beneficial. Well, as Brad reminded us today, nothing can separate us from the love of Christ, not even death. And you are in Christ, and he is in you. Take care. Mm-hmm.